Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, listener. Sorry for the lack of a show last week, but the internet gods, unfortunately, were against me. Uh, quite simply, I did an interview with the, with the actor, Sudi Riddell, that needed at least eight attempts to be conducted and completed that show should be with you all next week but in its place I have this uh, an interview which I did with Stephen Guerra about me talking about my love of comics and superhero films I did it for the podcast beyond the big screen so if you're into movies why not give it a listen and subscribe to it on your favorite podcatcher uh, where Steve the host each month speaks to a uh, looks at a particular celluloid classic or a genre in depth. Now, here is the show. This is Beyond the Big Screen Podcast with your host, Steve Guerra, an Agora Podcast Network member. Welcome back to Beyond the Big Screen. Now, today we are talking about comic book movies and superhero-based movies. And at one time in their earlier days, they were a a sideshow in the movie business. Now they are the bread and butter, a cash cow for the entire entertainment industry. Beginning in the 2000s, a whole host of movies have been released based on popular superheroes and comic book characters And they've really achieved an incredible box office success, as well as critical acclaim as well. Today, we are very happy to be joined by Mr. Royfield Brown to discuss the genre superhero comic books. Thank you so much for joining us today, Royfield. Well, listen, thank you for having me on. I thought me, one being into such lowbrow movie art, so to speak, that, you know, you wouldn't deign to have me on to talk about such a subject. (laughs) Not at all. This is this is serious stuff here. Now, Royfield is a podcast renaissance man. He is uh, the host and producer of countless podcasts, including but not <laughs> limited to 10 U.S. Presidents, How Jamaica Conquered the World, Friday 15, Mid-Atlantic, and more. Royfield's a genuine international man of mystery and a proud, self-proclaimed comic book nerd. Is that an accurate statement? I'd say I'm a connoisseur of the genre of comics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've been into comics uh, from a ridiculously early age. Um, Being being British, in the 1970s, you were exposed to um, UK comics, which invariably were funny or war comics, but they came out weekly. That's a big difference between UK comics and American. So ours came out weekly. At the early 70s, Marvel started reprinting its American output on a weekly basis in the UK. So there's a whole slew of men in their 30s and late 40s now who kind of grew up reading Marvel reprints. DC didn't do that. So you'll find that in somewhere like the U- in, the, in the UK, yes, everyone's aware of who Superman and Batman are, but uh, men of a certain age have this really close affinity to the Marvel heroes, and I, and I definitely do. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more? Those are the major, really the two big players, the Marvel characters and the DC characters. If, from my understanding, the DC characters are were developed a lot much longer ago. Can you maybe just explain a little bit where yeah. these two universes come from? All right, so DC's... DC, as you rightly kind of point out, is older than Marvel. Though it's actually not that much older. Is that Marvel had a name change? So, the grandfather of, of the whole superhero genre is Superman. He's the first uh, superhero which we would, you know, call it today. There were other kind of heroes like people like Flash Gordon beforehand, who was in comics, and then also obviously 1930s movies and people like the Phantom. But in terms of somebody who is fighting 
a good fight against evil who wears a cape and has got some kind of special abilities. Superman is the first one. And he's about 1937, 38. I forget exactly. Um, and then as an antidote to that, you have Batman, who's produced a year later, who is completely the opposite. So Superman is literally a god and he's an alien, uh, but Batman has no powers. And then Wonder Woman comes along in the early 1940s when America is at war. And Wonder Woman has a very convoluted origin story, which I, I won't even bore to t- tell you about. But those are the three kind of classic DC heroes. And then there's other people like Green Lantern and Flash who might be on the second tier. Marvel starts off as timely comics in the early 1940s. And its standout hero at the time was Captain America. America is about to go to war on the cover of Captain America issue one. Before America even goes to war, so this is before Pearl Harbor, so it's 1940, I think it's about May 1940, there's a picture of Captain America punching Hitler on the jaw. He's a sentinel of liberty. And but really, for me, the, the key difference between Marvel and DC is that the Marvel heroes have a little bit more depth in terms of their characterization. So if you think about it, Clark Kent, Superman, um, he's just this uh, chisel-jawed, doing good uh, do-gooder. Um, ditto with Wonder Woman. Batman has had this mythos of being a darker character grafted onto him really in the early 1980s. Whereas the Marvel characters always have some kind of fundamental flaw. Captain America is a man out of time. So the whole thing is after the Second World War, he gets frozen, then he's cryogenically uh, reanimated um, in the comics in the 1960s and then in the movies in the 1990s. And he's slightly at odds with with the America which he faces. Spider-Man is a teenager, can't even get a girl uh, to to go out and have a date with him, but he's fighting crime. Tony Stark, Iron Man, is an alcoholic, etc., etc. So the Marvel characters actually come in, with the exception of Captain America, really, in the early 1960s. And by that time, Stan Lee, who wrote all the early Marvel characters, introduced introduces this fatal flaw or this character defect or this humanizing trait, whichever you want to talk about it. Whereas at that point, um, every episode of Superman, he's just battling asteroids about to hit hit the Earth um, and writing great copy for the Daily Planet. Batman at that point is just his rich billionaire who's just, you know, fighting crime, etc. So by the early 1960s, there's a really clear distinction between the two superhero camps. What DC have done is to introduce um, these kind of character flaws, defects to their characters to make them much more interesting. Uh, so now the two camps are kind of interchangeable in terms of kind of the character development. But classically, that's what comic fans will tell you, is that DC the classic DC heroes do come 10, 20 years before the Marvel ones, with the exception of Captain America. But by the time of the 60s, you have um, this new stable of superheroes that kind of are a little bit kooky, don't, are not all middle-class, middle-aged, lantern-jawed men, in effect. That, the Marvel ones are a little bit kind of scruffier. By the 1970s, you start to have the late 1960s, 1970s, you start to have a few, one or two black heroes in Marvel. The Black Panther is like the first notable one, which has nothing to do with the Black Panthers in Oakland, where I am now, uh, in the Bay Area. Purely coincidental. Uh, and then you start to have a whole slew of kind of female superheroes. And that and, and that's ki- kind of it, really. So... Just to recap, sorry, I just realised there's an old load of talking about any of the Marvel heroes. Are. The classic ones are obviously Captain America, Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, Hulk, Thor, Iron Man, etc. And the X-Men. Those would be the big Marvel. Then who are the, and the main DC ones would be Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Yep. And then Green Lantern, Flash would be second tier and then you'd have like aquaman would be second tier um now cyborg who's in the in the movies um robin dick grayson has become nightcrawler um those would be like the main before we dig too much into the movies which we're going to survey the movies more than zero in on any one of them 
as a young man in England, a lot of these comic books, especially when you were probably a young person reading them, had a lot of social messages into them. As a young person, did you see that social message or was that something as you grew up, you know, as you developed the understanding of those messages developed more? Um, By the time of the early 80s, I was much more aware of of that. Um, Just being black, you notice that there weren't hardly any black superheroes. So that's the one thing you noticed. Um, The other thing which I I absolutely did notice was that not quite a social message, but really a kind of a tenor of the times, really, is that all of the superheroes had these very Anglo-sounding names, whereas I would switch on American TV and all the, the cops seemed to be called Starsky or had these, you know, Polish or Eastern European sounding names. And that was, it's, but it was Clark Kent, it was Bruce Wayne, you know, et cetera, because these characters have kind of been made in, in another era. Um, but, but one of the great things about looking back at the whole kind of lore of comics is that you realise that social issues are there. So the whole point of the Black Panther as a character in the Marvel Universe was to say that black Africans could be heroic. So Wakanda, the, the country where he mythically comes from, is his technologically superior country, which, which is kind of hidden away, as opposed to being starving, poor, um, you know, uh, despot-ridden uh, despot land. Um, there's a classic comic from about 1972, Green Lantern and Green Arrow, where... Uh, Speedy, who is the sidekick of Green Arrow, is found taking heroin. And that's written by Neil Adams. And that's kind of uh, incredibly famous in the whole kind of genre of being an incredibly on-the-nose, we're going to talk about social issues. Um, By the time of the 1980s, when I was really started to read in between the lines of the comics, because as a little kid, you just wanted to see the good guys punch the bad guys. That's just it. But by the time you become, um, I became a, a teenager, you, you start to realise, well, it, what about the role of women in, in all of this? And there's kind of two Marvel heroes who the development of female empowerment has kind of gone through their kind of story arc. Uh, and I'm much more Marvel than DC. Um, not knocking DC, but I just grew up, as I said, you know, with reading these reprints. So I know the characters much more than I know the DC ones. But the two characters are the Wasp and the Invisible Woman. So the Invisible Woman is part of the Fantastic Four, uh, and she is initially Sue Storm. She is the fiance of Reed Richards, the leader of the band. And she's, and when these stories start in the early 1960s, she's by far the least most powerful her power is she can just be invisible and slowly but surely through time they add more abilities she can project force fields and then they take that to its logical conclusion well if she can project a force field why can't she then stand on a force field and then fly if she wants to she she can do all manner of things and written in the early 1960s she was a classic american woman which is really almost like a 50s take because, you know, that counter-revolution didn't really happen until about 1964. So she's very subservient to read. She faints a lot. Dare I say she's quite pathetic. By the late 1980s, 90s, she's strong, confident, powerful, and can almost lead the Fantastic Four herself, you know, on ability alone. And another character where there's a s- similar kind of story arc would be the Wasp, where she comes into the Marvel Universe as being the sidekick of Ant-Man, and she's a rich, dilettante um, heiress. And she basically funds Henry Pym's experiments for him to shrink himself. And she just she goes along for the ride, really. By the 1980s, she's also kind of the, most, the least powered member of the Avengers. By the 1980s, even though her power set is still the same, she's uh, emotionally and tactically very astute and leads the whole band of Avengers for two or three years. And, uh, and that was just like an amazing thing for me. And when she actually led the Avengers, I was very aware that this was, um, you know, 
kind of sisters doing it for themselves, so to speak. This was a, a powerful woman, and that would have been about 1983 or four. So, so yeah, you know, you, you, I did kind of realize, but really as a as a teenager, not 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 as a small kid. Now you brought up a lot of these themes. Let's apply some of these big themes to the movies. You provided a sort of a seminal list of movies that you thought that I should watch uh, to prepare for this. And they span a good 30, almost 40 year uh, span of movies from the very earliest being Superman one with Christopher Reeve up to Logan, which was uh, more or less just released. I think it's just out of the theaters, depending on when you listen to this, let's go through each of these movies and maybe you can, Put them into context and maybe tell tell us why you think that they belong on a list of like must see comic book movies. So let's start with Superman one. What what's the thing that really uh, grabbed you about that movie? Well, quite simply, Superman one in nineteen seventy eight is the first real blockbuster superhero movie. Um, there were superhero movies in the nineteen forties. There was a couple of Batman movies, Captain America ones, and I'm sure even Superman, you know, I'm kind of guessing that Superman, and there was a famous run of Superman superhero TV uh, shows in the 1950s. But by 1978, um, this felt incredibly new and fresh. But it also, I think the late 70s are the dawn of the modern blockbuster, as we understand it. Um, A big tentpole movie, which is built kind of around special effects. If you go back to the mid-50s, just as TV was getting into its swing in the US, you had those sword and sandal epics. In the 60s, um, yes, there were very big films, but they're, but they're very different in feel. By the end of the 1970s, you're having Jaws, you're having uh, Star Wars, and you have Superman. And if you were a little comic book <laughs> geek like me, this is your stuff. This is the stuff that you've been reading on your own. That's the thing about nerddom is invariably you do it by yourself initially yes you could play dungeons and dragons with friends and stuff but i was never really into that but you read comics as a solitary thing then all of a sudden you realize there were hundreds of millions of other people into this and there was superman on screen and it and it's actually just a beautiful film you watch it and the special effects have not held up because they just can't because it's a, a pre-computerized era but it's beautiful storytelling and it's quintessentially the classic superhero story. The one that everybody knows, whether they think they know Superman or not, is from another planet. The planet is in peril. His parents send him, send the little baby away. This lovely all-American couple happen to find the baby. Um, they hide his abilities as a teenager, he kind of wrestles with his uh, super superpowers, and he then goes off to the big city to do to fight truth and justice in the American way. And it's a classic story, but out of it have come some scenes which are classic in terms of the movie genre. So, just one of them would be um, the depiction of. Superman 1 and Superman 2 are kind of interchangeable, and they were actually shot back to back. And Superman 2 is the story of the um, the baddies from Krypton being released because um, Superman throws this nuclear weapon in, into space, and, and, it, and the repercussions of that kind of, kind of free them. So you've got classic baddies. You've got this amazing fight scene with the baddies um, in apparently Metropolis was actually shot shot in London in Pinewood Studios, which is just a great thing to behold. You've got Superman flying around the world uh, to to spin it backwards in time. You've got uh, Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. He kind of plays it somewhat for, for, for jokes and for kicks, but it's just a great, lovely family movie. It almost seemed like the Superman one set the stage for and set the mold that all those other ones could play with, like the, all the archetypal characters and all the the settings and the problems. It really that does seem to be the one that starts all of the rest of the genre up until the modern day. Well, absolutely, though, 
it didn't feel like that at the time. It's very apt that Superman is the first hero um, who makes it to celluloid. It's very apt because he's the first superhero. He's the mold of which all superheroes are kind of like made from. You know, he wears tights and a cape and, and he can fly and he's strong. Fundamentally, that is 99.9% of superheroes, you know, have at least one of those uh, kind of traits, one of those characteristics. But though those superheroes, so though, though those Superman films were incredibly successful, they didn't actually really spawn at the time a whole load of superhero films. There was stuff that happened on TV. So there was Bill Bixby played the Hulk that was on TV. There was a <laughs> Spider-Man TV series, which I wetted myself with excitement when that came on TV. But I'm telling you, Steve, it is not held up. <laughs> you know, you look back and you look, you see the clips of it on YouTube and it, it is dreadful. Whereas Superman is still a joy to watch, you know, dodgy CGI. Well, it was never called CGI, special effects, sorry, um, withstanding. It's a lovely story, but also a really well-played Clark Kent and Superman. And what Christopher Reeve actually does is, is stunning because actually when he is Clark Kent, he is physically different from when he's Superman because, of course, there is no mask. The mask is, is a pair of glasses. But the way that he is so clumsy and he stoops all the time, but when he's Superman, he stands up erect and he is kind of heroic and he is much more direct. It's actually a bit of a, a, a masterclass in acting because you're playing two different characters. So, you know, we can dismiss... Uh, a lot of people can dismiss the genre, and don't get me wrong... There are a lot of tropes and there are a lot of things which are just repeated ad nauseum. But, you know, in Superman, in those Superman films, Chris Reeve is acting out of his skin. And then you've got great little cameos from, from Gene Hackman, who, you know, is just a great actor. You know, you've got Marlon Brando giving it a certain level of gravitas. And then you've got even uh, Terrence Stamp, who plays General Zod, <laughs> yeah, was who's a great villain. He just... <laughs> You know, <laughs> I am Zod, kneel before me. You know, it's just great. It's great. <laughs> you know, this is a great popcorn movie, which is constructed really well with actors who know what they're doing. And, 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 and an amazing score as well. That John Williams score uh, is something for the ages. It's almost as iconic as the Star Wars theme. You know, you hear that and you, and you can just see Superman. Now you fast forward a little bit to 1989, and that's the first Batman movie. And the Batman movies have become a genre in and of themselves. But that first, that 1989 one, that was something else of a movie. What did you, why did that make your list? Well, it made my list because, because as you kind of said, it's a genre within itself. Um, the thing is about Batman is if you're to believe that Batman can exist in a world of superheroes, you need to create your own world. Now, the world of Superman is the world that we know. And that's definitely the world that we see in that 1978 superhero uh, film, uh, Superman 1. But for Batman <laughs> to really be Batman, you've got to create your own universe, kind of where there aren't guns, <laughs> right, for, for a start off, you know. So you have this enclosed world created by Tim Burton, which was this re, a really faithful reimagining of what was happening in the comics at, at the time. So it's a very dark, dystopian world where Gotham is gothic, as the name kind, kind of um, denotes. It's crime-ridden, but there, there is hope. But he has to tackle crime head-on. You know, he can't fly around the world and spin it backwards like Superman come. He doesn't have laser beams coming out of his eyes. So it's much more visceral in, in, in that regard. But if you look at things like, for me, because I'm really visually driven, and considering I'm fundamentally a podcaster, it sounds like a bit of a misnomer, but I really am. And those films of the mid to late 1950s, the Sword and Standals epics, are what, were in part got me into history, not completely, but in part, the spectacle of Rome. Then you have 2001, A Space Odyssey in the late 1960s, and then you have Star Wars. 
and these are visual world building. Then you have Blade Runner in the early, early 80s, early to mid 80s. And then you have Batman. And visually, it's just the set design, the art design is just immaculate. And then because things have moved on just a little from, from the 1970s, um, your baddie isn't just a, a cookie cutter baddie. I want to rule the world. It's a bit twisted. So you've got Jack Nicholson playing the Joker. And being into comics, by, by the, the mid-80s, um, there started to be graphic novels. So there always were comics, but then the, kind of the sub-genre of graphic novels started to be produced uh, where you could have darker themes. And that's where we have this new Batman, this darker brooding Batman, as opposed to the Adam West TV Batman of the 1960s, where these writers try and imagine, you know, if you had this billionaire who was fighting crime, he's going to be a pretty broken and twisted guy. You know, he's going to have twisted motivations as to why he, why he's dressed the way that he is uh, trying to fight crime. And The Killing Joke is this seminal comic um, in the late 80s where the psyche of Batman and the Joker are really played out by a guy called Alan Moore. He, he writes it. And you see elements of this more psychological duality between the Batman and the Joker in Batman 1989. Um, I thought Michael, Michael Keaton being Batman was always a miscasting. He's not particularly heroic to me, uh, whether he's in and out of the cowl, so to speak. But just as a visual epic, as a visual beast, you know, you can't help but put that movie up there with some of the best in terms of art design. Yeah, I thought with him, what was surprising about having Michael Keaton in there is that in a time where it was all big action movies with Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger, your protagonist in that movie is kind of a guy who's definitely not the ripped muscle man military type guy he's it was more cerebral than a lot of the movies that were happening at that time absolutely and i suppose um that's one of the reasons why he was kind of cast but he still felt wrong but you know i don't think christian bale who we can talk about later in the you know the Dark Knight trilogies is particularly believable as as a Bruce Wayne. I actually think that visually, Ben Affleck, the current Batman, looks like Batman. You know, I, you know, I'm just going to pure. I'm not on about acting chops. Michael Keaton is a brilliant actor, and uh, the older he gets, the better he seems to be for me. And he his uh, role as the Vulture in the latest Spider Man movie. He's brilliant. He knocks the ball completely out of the park. And you're going to have to remind me, Steve, he plays um, a bird character. What was that film he won an Oscar for about three, four years ago? Oh, my goodness. It was something like the bird, yeah, man. Yeah, or... it was some, and the playing off the fact that he was actually Batman. He's amazing in that as well. But as Bruce Wayne, I don't know. Bruce Wayne's got to have a certain kind of suave swagger, which I don't believe he actually had. Yeah, he definitely missed the swagger. But now that we're on the topic of these Batman movies, it it has rebooted several times. And one of your movies was the Christian Bale version of Batman. Why does that one, do you feel? Actually, the, the movie with Michael Keaton was called Birdman. <laughs> but um, <laughs> why do you think that one with Christian Bale should be on the list of must-see comic book films? Because it's really, all the things that I said about the first Batman movie are absolutely writ large with this one. But it's really good to see 20 years later the reimagining of the world of Batman. Because as I said, out of all of the superheroes who've made it to the screen, with the possible exception of, let's say, the X-Men, but that's for other reasons, you have to build another world for Batman for him to be believable. And arguably, that's the reason why his position in the Justice League in this new film which is out, which is not a good film, is actually kind of quite problematic. Because remember, Batman has no physical abilities, which are extraordinary. He's an ordinary guy. Yes, he has great fighting skills and he has great toys. But 
if you look back at that 1989 Batman to the 2008 one, it shows you how much the whole genre has moved on in terms of special effects, world building. It's an absolutely epic visual feast. But then at its heart, as I said with that first Batman movie, you have an antagonist, the Joker. Well, he got an Oscar, didn't he, his ledger? It's Oscar worthy. Every actor wants to play a baddie. And when Heath Ledger was put into the role of being the Joker, comic book fans just said, well, this is a guy that did Brokeback Mountain. Great film. I love Brokeback Mountain, but I couldn't see him as the Joker because Jack Nicholson had written and almost created that role. You know, you're maniacal, you're uh, crazy, you have this <laughs> inner strength of, I just don't give a fuck, a bullness. <laughs> right. And you can, you, destruction means nothing to you. And it's, and Jack Nicholson was so compelling. And then you're going to take this, this actor, and he was an up and coming actor, Heath Ledger, but people said, you, you, Jack Nicholson has just written, written the law on this. And he, Heath Ledger just took it to another. Yeah, he like dispelled it, the Jack Nicholson. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, so much so that Jared Leto, who's just been the Joker, you know, every people say, well, but you're not Heath Ledger. Because he, Heath Ledger ripped up the, the copybook with it. You know, he put Jack Nicholson to sleep in terms of his uh, depiction, of the, depiction of the Joker. But also it shows you what we could um, accept actually on our on our screens, that our sensibilities had moved on in those 19 years as well. So it's just absolutely an amazing film. It's not necessarily a film I'd want to go and, and take my mother to, but as somebody who loves uh, the movies and comics and the psychological motivation of why people do what they want, and I want that to be played out dramatically, um, you're going to struggle to see a better villain than um, Heath Ledger as uh, the Joker in The Dark Knight in 2008. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Then just to go back a little bit in time, the early 2000s was really the time where these movies exploded. And especially with two movies, the... um. X-Men, the original X-Men, and then the, the original Spider-Man movies with Tobey Maguire. Why do those ones make your list? Literally, for those reasons, because this current slew of movies, which are now, what, some almost 20 years now that superhero movies have been killing it in the box office, these two films, for me, Spider-Man 2 and, and X-Men 2, kind of write the modern template. When Spider-Man came on screen, Spider-Man 1, um, it, this wasn't just a fit and a start. So well, what I mean by that was you had, Spider you had Superman in the late 70s, and he had to wait another 10 years for another character, Batman. Then the, then the Batman sequels get worse and worse and worse. And, and I love George Clooney, but George Clooney plays um, batman in the mid 90s and arnold schwarzenegger is mr freeze and that is just a joke of a film it's, it's a comic yeah they don't even uh, hardly uh, warrant any mentioning no no you know they, they, they're bad so by the time that spider-man comes out us comic book fans are just you know the, sat here with rap, rapt attention and it absolutely does deliver but spider-man 2 from the sam raimi trilogy is a beautiful beautifully encapsulated film it's obviously in new york so there's no world building in that regard you just build the relationships around peter parker who is spider-man um i do have um i love alfred molina who plays dr octavus and one of the reasons why i love him is because he's from notting hill and that's where i lived for 20 years he's actually born and brought up in my neighborhood in in, in london so there's a, that, that kind of thing but it's a love story 
It's beautifully shot. Some of the CGI is a little bit hokey, and um, Spider-Man, the Spider-Man from the comics, has never been to date really successfully rendered on screen the way that he actually moves and he swings. But there's some scenes in that which are just tremendous, Steve. The the scene where Spider-Man stops the speeding train, I challenge anybody to find a more exciting, impactful scene in the whole lore of moviedom, which is infinitely better than that. And the symbolism of Spider-Man, of Tobey Maguire, Peter Parker, stopping that train uh, from careering off, off the edge of the, uh, the train tracks. And then he's so spent that he's then carried through that carriageway uh, by the, the good citizens of New York. I might be mixing up my Spider-Man movies here. Am I getting this wrong? Was, was that a Green Goblin? No, I think it is. I think that, I think that is Spider-Man too. But it, it, it's, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing scene. But then also uh, a scene which has become iconic is where Mary Jane kisses Spider-Man and he's upside down. It's the upside down kiss and she rolls his, his mask down to kiss him. It's just a beautiful, beautiful scene. But that also that scene where it's just it's just a great film. And also it's shot with this kind of this golden tinge to it. It's like, you know, the world is, you know, the, is hopeful and aspirational, which is what you don't get from the Batman movies. So There's the deliberate kind of almost like the sunset hour when you, when, you, when you take a picture of that kind of golden hour between like three and five o'clock where the light's kind of golden. It's, all feels like that. It's a beautiful film. X2 is just the pure fanboy in me, Steve. Um, the first scene of that where Nightcrawler is teleporting from room to room in the White House to deliver this note to the president, every comic book fan literally pees their trousers. Um, t- it's because, for me, I call it superhero physics. When you read the comics, these 2D representations of what was happening, these heroes have these abilities. But to see them rendered on a movie in a convincing way and in a way that makes sense was just something to behold. And that was one of the most exciting opening scenes I can remember to to any movie. And as I said, it's Nightcrawler, who's this mutant who is trying to deliver this message to to the president about the... uh, the alienation that mutants feel these people who are born with these extraordinary abilities and he and he teleports from room to room so you have all these um secret service guards who are trying trying to shoot him and he just and he zapped from room to room brilliantly shot brilliantly realized and i just throw it in there for that you know if you just want to see people with extraordinary abilities doing real expressing their abilities in, in a visceral and a real, real way. You can't get any better than Nightcrawler in the start of, of X2. And it's interesting you say like X-Men was the, that was like fulfilling the comic book nerd in you. I felt like the Iron Man movie, the first one in 2008, that was the first one where I think like, when I talked to real comic book people, that was the one they were so excited about. What was it about Iron Man that really got people excited? I think a lot of it is actually in hindsight, because by the time that Iron Man had come along, you'd had maybe three X movies. You'd had a dud Daredevil movie. You'd had a dud Nightcrawler movie. I think you even had the second incarnation of Superman by then. But what was different was this, was that Iron Man in the, in the Marvel Universe up until that point had always been a B-list character. And without getting too much into the whole weeds of the whole thing, is that Marvel as a company was bankrupt by the, the, early, by the late 90s. And what they did to, to gain solvency was to sell the movie rights of all of their major characters. So your Spider-Mans and your Hulks, etc., Fantastic Four, X-Men, to these movie studios. The ones that they were left with were the B-list characters. Iron Man, Captain America, by then was definitely B-list. Thor. These are the ones that nobody wanted. What excited comic fans was 
the Iron Man portrayed was pretty faithful to the comics. And he was faithful to the comics because this was Marvel Studios producing the film. So I love, and everybody loves the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films, but if you read the comics, when Spider-Man gets his abilities, Spider-Man is in high school. You know, he's 15, 16. Tobey Maguire, even though he was at high school, I say that, you know, in parentheses with air quotes, he, w- he was an older character. And the movie studio, Sony at the time, you know, played him as slightly older, etc. Whereas Marvel just said, we understand the source material. We're going to play it the way that it was written 30 years ago. So Tony Stark is this mercurial genius, but he's deeply flawed and he's an alcoholic. So to have Robert Downey Jr. play him was such casting genius. Not only did he kind of look like Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr. had a problem with alcohol. It was just genius casting. So literally now, when people look back, you know, with hindsight, there's a genius bit of casting. It was um, incredibly faithful to the comics in terms of the origin story. And it was just a very well-crafted film. I was surprised. I remember going with literally no expectations because there was no reputation of Marvel Studios. It was the first film. I'm thinking, well, this is Iron Man. I'm, Iron Man's always been a bit crap, really, but I'm a Marvel Marvel fanboy. I'll go along. I walked out going, bloody hell, I've, I've really enjoyed that. That that was something else. <laughs> I, I literally had no expectations, but it was faithful, Steve, that that was a thing. And now we know that um, it started the franchise of the, the biggest um, movie studios um, on planet Earth. You know, that was that was the first film and and launched the franchise. So that one, and then leading into the, all of these like Captain America movies, you said that was another one that was kind of a B-lister that Marvel was able to hold on. Why does that one uh, strike some resonance Mm. with you? Well, I've always, Captain America has always been my favorite superhero. And people think because of the whole 10 American presidents and I'm living in America, it's because as a little kid, I was fascinated by America. The truth could not, couldn't be any further from the truth, shall we say. I've always loved Captain America because he was un- he didn't have amazing abilities. So Captain America is supposed to be the most perfect human being you can be, super soldier serum to go and fight the Nazis. So, okay. um, so I've always been a big Captain America fan. I love the first Captain America film, The First Avenger, which was shot with a very much of a... a it was set in the Second World War, but some such clever scenes. And, and as, a, as a little comic fanboy, there's the scene where um, he's doing this vaudeville act and he's punching Hitler on the nose. is exact the rendition of Captain America issue number one. But for me, Captain America's Civil War, no, honourable mention to Captain America the Winter Soldier, which is Captain America number two, which arguably is the best Marvel superhero movie. And it's a 1970s spy thriller. And Robert Redford plays the baddie, which is another bit of genius casting. By the time you get round to The Winter Soldier, which is about 2014, Marvel know what they're doing, and they go, right, this is a genre of superhero movies, but each movie is within another genre. This is a 70s uh, intellectual spy thriller going to get Robert Redford and you just go genius um, and I love the, the Winter Soldier and there's a scene in that where Captain America is in a in a lift with uh, a whole group of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents and he realises halfway down that they're going to try and detain him and it's just an amazing fight scene Steve. The choreography of that thing is just something to behold but Captain America Civil War I think is not a Captain America movie at all came out last year, 2016. It's an Avengers movie. And really, the Avengers, number one, should be on the list. But I thought, you've got to mix things up a little. So really, Captain America Civil War is really an Avengers film. Um, one of the comics which I was most enraptured by as a kid was um, an edition, a, re- a British reprinting of the new Avengers versus the old. 
then that was the Avengers Annual in 1968, I believe, it was, but was reprinted in Britain in 1976 as a weekly. And it's this black cover, and on the one side you've got Giant Man squaring up against another Giant Man, another Wasp against a Wasp, you've got the Black Panther against the Hulk, you've got Hawkeye against Iron Man, and you've got Thor against Captain America. And basically what has happened is the Avengers have stumbled into this weird time portal and they've bumped into an older version of the Avengers. And in typical Marvel fashion, the heroes are fighting amongst themselves. This is a real Marvel comic trope, whereas there's some kind of confusion and the goodies are fighting amongst themselves. That, to me, as a kid, blew my stack, Steve. It's beautifully drawn. The cover is amazing. And as a little kid who, and I could draw, that for me, even the artist, the artist who drew that is a guy called uh, John Bicema. He's my favourite comic book artist because of that cover. It was just so impactful. Captain America Civil War has the airport scene where Captain America leads a bunch of his Uki Avengers against Iron Man because he needs to get to, uh, get to this plane so he can put the Winter Soldier in this plane to escape from Germany. It's the new Avengers versus the old. Steve, you don't understand, right? If you're a seven-year-old boy <laughs> and you pick up this comic and it's your most treasured comic, and then you find yourself 40 <laughs> years later watching a film where, in effect, it's the same scene, you wet yourself. You, if you, if you watch that DVD and you just, put, you just put it back to the start of that scene where Captain America says, suit up. <laughs> you go i am seven again i'm watching i you don't i'm just seven steve and because it's 40 years later the superhero physics are there so the right heroes are fighting each other i.e the ones that can fly are flying against the ones that can fly um the ones who are more um acrobatic are fighting against each other the great scene where spider-man kind of comes in and doesn't kind of know what he's doing and there's even a great movie reference in that. So um, Ant-Man becomes Giant-Man, which is just like a stand-up and applaud moment if you're a, a comic book fan. You know, he becomes like 30 foot tall. And everybody, and even Iron Man says, oh my God, is there anybody else with any, you know, weird abilities they want to tell us about? As you see this like hulking, uh, wrong word to use, is this Goliath of a character just appear out of nowhere. And... It's just, as I say, Steve, I can watch that scene all day long. The amazing thing is about, about that scene as well is that it's CG, and you wouldn't believe it by looking at it. Um, they are, um, what I mean by that is that they're not in an airport. I thought physically, at least, they're in, you know, in a set, it's all green screen, and, and it's just beautiful. The introduction of Spider-Man into the Marvel Universe is there. Um, you've got... Um, Great action scenes, great dialogue, and it's just a beautiful thing to behold. I'm just seven when I watch it. Every time I watch it, I just go, you know what? Life don't get any better than this. I can die and just go to whether it's heaven or hell I'm destined for, but I can die happy after watching that scene. So that's the reason why, why I put that in. And the other thing to say about that film is that the Avengers films are obviously an ensemble cast of, of heroes. And to write any kind of drama uh, which has multiple characters is not easy. But what you find in um, these later superhero films, because what Marvel are doing is world build, universe building, sorry, in terms of interconnectivity of it all, which is the thing which I didn't really say about the first Iron Man film, is that it's one thing to have a Spider-Man film beforehand, it's one thing to have a Batman film but none of the heroes inhabited each other's worlds cinematically until Marvel came along with Iron Man 1 in 2008. And that was Marvel's... Marvel had many great tricks. It was beginning to interconnect these worlds in a way that they were in the comics. So Captain America would help out Iron Man in the comics every now and then, and, and vice versa, and Superman would help out Batman. It's called the Justice League, you know. But that never happened on screen. And at the end of that film, there's a hint where Nick Fury comes along that there's his wider universe. But then, so, so that interconnected thing, but then also by the time of Iron Man 1, Marvel 
I realized kind of what has worked with the earlier superhero films and what do enhance. And the comic asides are definitely an integral part of that. So, uh, and that was definitely a part of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films or these comic asides in a way that there never was with the Christopher Nolan stuff. And Marvel say, right, go. You've given us, you know, like this genre at its highest point. Where do you think that some of these comic movies have gone uh, too, uh, too off the rails? Maybe they're too much CGI or they just... They don't, oh. they don't come across right. What are some ones that are some of your lowlights? The obvious ones are, and I am a Marvel fanboy, but I don't hate on DC. But many people listen to this because, oh, he just hates on DC. No, I don't. But you cannot compare. Whenever the, a superhero film comes out, I go and watch it, whether it's Marvel or DC. But as somebody who, and I said I was, I'm visually fixated, I love graphics. And I love the painterly vision that Zack Snyder brings to, let's say, The Watchmen, or even to his first Superman movie, but it's too much. Ultimately, yes, spectacle is involved in watching this stuff, but the, the, the superhero movies that work the most are the ones with effective world building. So there's got to be consequences, i.e., if you're going to take a building down, some civilians need to shriek in horror. And if the hero is a hero, he needs to try and stop that from happening. That was the big fault made in the first Zack Snyder Superman film, where he's just, him and General Zod are throwing each other through building after building. Too much CGI, too many dark, foreboding skies, and you just become numb, which is the charm of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films because he's recognizably in a world that you know is in New York. You look at the, the first Avengers film, it's New York that you recognize. It's a world that you know. So ultimately, you be, kind of believe the stakes, whereas Batman versus Superman, it's a cartoon. You might have live-action characters, but it's a, it's a cartoon. Um, Man of Steel beautiful moments is ultimately a cartoon the justice league movie which is out at the moment is a glorified cartoon as well you know they, they these yeah that whole go that whole um the dc ones seem to be much more cartoonish than the the marvel ones yeah the the marvel ones are they understand that moms and dads who are not into the genre have to take their kids to these films and have to be entertained as well. And there has to be some level of plausibility. And, and it isn't just in terms of the writing, the Marvel ones are constructed to a much higher level. The amount of jokes in the latest Thor movie, it's a comedy. You know, that Marvel has got it to such uh, a high pitch that what they do is they go, right, it's a superhero genre, but this is a comedy film. This one's a buddy cop film. This one is a, uh, is a road movie. This one is a... DC hasn't got to that level yet. Basically what DC have said, we are putting on screen the biggest heroes that you've ever seen and they're going to slug it out. Yeah, definitely. Wonder Woman was a great film and I really enjoyed it. But the last third of that film, you just, you just yawned. The amount of CG and air is just... You know, air is in, in the sky and lightning bolts. And you just went, oh, please. And they set it up so well with the great scenes with her in, uh, uh, what, a 1918 London and how, visually how that looked. It was just beautiful. The, the art direction, the costume design, uh, the way the actors played it. And Chris Pine was, was a great foil to um, Gal Gadot, you know, so... Great, great, great. And they just ruined it in the last third by having this over-the-top CG fest and whatever. So I just, I actually want these films to get smaller in scope, if you're asking me where it goes. And I think to end, um, Logan was, uh, was a beautiful film which came out this year. Logan is uh, the name of Wolverine. Uh, Wolverine is this mutant X-Men. And 
Fox have had the franchise for the X-Men for almost 20 years now, about 19 years. And some of the films have been good. Some of them have been not so good. X-Men Days of Future Past, which was set in the early 60s around the Cuban Missile Crisis, is a great film. Visually, it's very stylistic because I, I'm, I'm a mod. I always love um, the fashions of the 60s anyway. But the heroes just kind of look great. And it's a clever juxtaposition of heroes in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And actually the heroes are the ones that, you know, the, the Russians actually do fire the missiles, but they, they kind of prevent it. And it was all very good and very, very cool and very stylish. But there's something about having a small superhero film, which I think is, is equally satisfying, if not more satisfying. If you can have a superhero film, you do need a fight sequence. There's no two ways about it. But what I always enjoyed when I read the comics as a kid were the stories when the superheroes weren't actually doing anything, when they were leading their, their ordinary lives, and then they were confronted by the fact they had these extraordinary abilities. That, for me, is always much more interesting than, than them saving the world. And the heroes who had the power to save the world all the time would never interested me. Hence, I liked Captain America. He's not that powerful. He, you know, if there's a nuclear bomb hitting, heading towards New York, Captain America's not going to save you. You know, that's Iron Man's job. He can protect all Superman's job. Logan is this great small film set, um, which take, draws its inspiration from a graphic novel called Old Man Logan, which I believe is about 10 years old now. And as I said, parallel to the continuum of comics in the last 30 years has been the graphic novel. And what that allows the writer to do is to reimagine the world for maybe three or four issues where what would happen if, let's say, Superman, instead of landing in America, landed in the Soviet Union. That's called Red Sun. It's a great comic. It's Superman growing up in Soviet Russia. And that's a graphic novel. It's a one-off. Old Man Logan is the story of this, this dystopian world where the baddies have taken over America and Old Man Wolverine lives in, in the in the Midwest somewhere, and whenever he uses his abilities, gets his claws out, physically physically hurts him. He's getting old, he's not as strong as he used to be, he's an old man, his healing factor is gone. That was the genus of the, of the Logan film, which came out this year. It's, it's Wolverine Logan looking after Professor X, Professor X being this mutant with these super abilities to be able to read minds and, and whatever, as a 90-year-old man, he's a madman. He's ranting and raving. You know, he's mentally spent. He's crazy. He's got dementia. And it was Logan looking after him, caring for his old mentor, and then having to look after his daughter, who he didn't know that he had, who has abilities very sim similar to him. But because he's an older man, he's got a somewhat of a handle on his innate rage, whereas she hasn't. She's about 10 or so. She just is such a great character, Steve. And it's a lovely small movie. It's a bit of a road movie. It's a bit of a Western. Um, and, and it's great. You know, I kind of like, I, I, yes, I do like a bit, a bit of CGI. If you can really imagine that a hero is flying in space, that's great. But actually, I like, I like physical effects. You know, let's keep it as much as you can in the camera, so to speak. And this is a film which has got the balance absolutely right. And it's a smaller film. It wasn't about saving the world and New York crashing down and, and a thousand aliens and stuff. It was about one father protecting his mentor and guiding his daughter, um, you know, uh, taking her from one place to another, you know. So it's almost like a Kurosawa film or something or another. It was just beautiful. So hopefully the genre will go on. It will still keep on reinventing itself by cross-pollinating itself with other genres, with, you know, buddy movies or comedies and whatever. But let's hope that the films become a little bit smaller. Just to wrap it up today, do you think, think that this is the golden age of these uh superhero comic book films is that what we're in right now or are we moving out of it and maybe what do, what you've said a little bit about what you've liked to see with these movies but um maybe speak a little bit more to what 
you think the next phase is in the comic book film? Um, I actually think there's too many of them, and I, and I love them. Right, uh, Marvel put out at least two, if not three, a year. Then DC are trying to put out at least two as well. That's five. And considering these films are always big, and that's before you even throw in Fox and Sony, actually. So when you think about it, you know, every other month there's a there's a, a superhero film. I think that's too much. We are in a golden age. Um, I've said before there, were, there are actually too many movies, but the thing is they're actually just great stories. Um, we will look back in five years, I believe, and no, we're not going to say the, the super, superhero movie um, shtick is over, but hopefully there'll just be less of them. It's definitely a golden age, but, but, but we've got to be really careful that the tropes of the genre don't actually destroy it really that you know the 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 goodies have always got got to triumph in the end you know these are movies and they're movie tropes and then there's the tropes of the genre but we need clever directors writers to throw some real curveballs in and just for what it's worth the the new avengers infinity war film some heroes will die and will stay dead and that's really what the, the whole genre needs. Really, there needs to be real consequences for these uh, for these people doing daring do's. That every now and then, you know, they, they're going to get it, but they need to kind of stay dead. So it, it's a golden age. And as I say, as I said earlier on, you know, I can actually die happy now. I've seen my my childhood writ large and become real. And um, you know. All I can do is thank the cinematic gods for, for you know, making sure that I could be alive to see such a thing. <laughs> Before we go, uh, Royfield, do you have anything to share or any plugs you want to share with us? Um, What's oh, new so with Royfield Brown? Uh, well, you know, it's funny you should say that, Steve. This is off mic because I actually don't have a Friday 15 for tomorrow. So, uh, uh, okay, here we go. What do I have to share? I like heroes. I obviously like my heroes to have a cape or so and have uh, amazing abilities. But equally as heroic and actually much more heroic really are real-life heroes. And I'm currently working on the life of Teddy Roosevelt, um, one of the most transformative American presidents who really is a superman was a superman in terms of american politics and it bridges the gap between this old uh weakened executive role where the president all he did was really just sign whatever order was given to him by the senate and congress whereas teddy roosevelt really wrote the legislative agenda and and destroyed the trust so I uh, so I'm working on that at the moment. That's in my series ten American presidents. I keep on threatening to release another How Jamaica Conquered the World, but um I have much more material, so I should, should really do that. Uh the last thing to say is that I on Monday will be recording my two hundredth dum de dum, which will be a live episode, and that gives me a lot of joy. And I don't really talk about it in history fields, but I do um, this show where I document on a weekly basis this on-running British radio soap opera, and uh, it's our 200th show on Monday, and one of the actors of the show will be coming on. And one of the reasons why that is significant for me personally is because she's actually uh, the actor who played the storyline of Kathy having an affair with pc dave barry in the mid 80s which got me into the arctic in the first place so to have her on the show is a, a real philip in my cap you know so to speak so yeah that's what i'm working on more podcasts well thank you so much for coming on it was a real pleasure and i learned a ton about comic book movies and i think everybody else will too uh, you haven't had a better guest on than me have you steve uh, no definitely not <laughs> well i won't say that to the other guests we'll, we'll edit this one out <laughs> no no you leave that one in sir <laughs> thanks for having me on steve thank you again for listening to the beyond the big screen podcast of course a big thanks goes out to roy field brown of the 10 american presidents friday 15 mid-atlantic and many more podcasts for joining us today as well 
Links to learn more about Roy Field and his projects can be found at www.royfield.com or at agorapodcastnetwork.com, also in the show notes. A great way to support Beyond the Big Screen is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. These reviews really help me know what you think of the show and help other people learn about Beyond the Big Screen. We will have periodic drawings for Beyond the Big Screen merchandise and movie memorabilia. All you have to do is submit a review to Apple Podcast in any country store and you'll be entered into the drawing. I will announce the name of the winner on an episode and on social media. Speaking of social media, you can connect with me and other people who want to learn more about the real backstory of movies and the exciting background on these movies they watch on Facebook and Twitter. You can contact me there or just send an email to steve at a2zhistorypage.com. Links to all this and more can be found at a2zhistorypage.com. I will see you next time beyond the big screen. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 